Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, skin flakes, prime numbers, and urine. In addition, we're joined by Dr. Simon Singh, who will talk about the Big Bang. Also, we'll find out what gold plating is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. It's been a very nice week so far. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And it started out pretty nicely, uh, reminiscing about Feynman anyway. Oh, yes. Indeed. The Feynman, right? The uh, the actual Feynman. And, you know, of course, as everybody knows, Feynman is God. <laughs> <laughs> or at least what, the main apostle? Yeah, or, well, at least, yeah, I'm sure he's probably either the right hand, the left hand, or some hand of God. <laughs> I'm not sure how many hands God has, but... <laughs> Probably many, at least more than two. So for some reason we're celebrating his life this year, huh? Well, at least uh, I guess his letters anyway, which oh. were uh, released by his uh, daughter, Michelle Feynman. Right. Which was quite interesting. And uh, of course we were moderating a panel Monday, if anybody was there at the California Academy of Sciences, talking about uh, both Feynman and of course the, the book of letters that he had. He right, wrote. very enlightening. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, he's, he's producing books even after he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> quite prolific as an author. Did you have a favorite letter in there? There are a number of good letters. I mean, it's just, uh, I think the thing that was sort of intriguing about the book was just the fact that it showcased a lot of his personal antics and uh, his sort of unconventional view of, uh, of the world. You mean the New York cabbie driver's wisdom? <laughs> the sort of the, yeah, wasn't he from Brooklyn? <laughs> yeah. I, I always try and read the book with a Brooklyn accent, but somehow it doesn't. <laughs> it seems to invoke the spirit of Feynman. <laughs> yeah, so it was quite good. I don't know. Did you, did you enjoy it? Yeah, very much. Um, I liked his letter a lot regarding revoking his membership of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh, yeah. Well, it took him like almost 10 years to do that, in fact. <laughs> yes. Which was, uh, I, I guess, a test to his persistence, really. <laughs> yeah, but it brings an interesting point, you know, is this organization really, you know, a functioning advisory group to the government? Is it just one big beauty pageant where they're just getting more beautiful people? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've seen some of the members of the National Academies, and uh, I don't think beauty is necessarily, <laughs> or at least, uh, you know, a factor. If it comes along, that's probably good, but there's some sort of self-selection uh, that goes into that when you yes. get into science, really, I think. I, I guess he uh, found the so-called uh, self-praise to be kind of distasteful. Yeah, and of course, just the fact that it's it's kind of a club, and you're electing other people to the same kind of club. But you can't fault them. I mean, they do produce our favorite journal. Oh, yeah. Penis. <laughs> Which, uh, I mean, who can't enjoy a, uh, a journal with a title like that, really? Um, <laughs> so it looks like you sound like have a little cold or something, huh? Yeah, so actually I am... <clears throat> yeah, so actually I, I guess I am suffering from a little bit of a cold, but uh, that's 
something I've been suffering from ever since, I guess, I, I read Feynman's work. I don't know what's uh, what's up with that. But. Uh, well, he had a way with ladies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? I don't know. Unless the cold removes my nads somehow. I don't think there's anything to be worried, but I think just yesterday there was a report that a, a pandemic-causing strain of the Asian flu had accidentally been re- uh, released in laboratories around the world. It, it had accidentally been released in laboratories? How, how, how did it simultaneously become released? Well, so there's a organization called the College of American Pathologists, and they produce these kits with many different strains of flu so that the labs can test them for themselves, basically give them a self-test to see if they can identify these different strains of flu. And accidentally, one of the strains was the one from the 1957 pandemic in Asia. Oh, okay. Well, that's not good. Uh, no, in fact, that's the one where I, I believe, I think up to 2 million people died. And uh, in 1977, it was accidentally re-released in Russia. And that time, another million people died. I see. And uh, this time, they've released it worldwide. Yes. But it's at least controlled in the labs, more or less, you would so far, but at least in one lab it's already escaped, and that's how they found out was um, in this lab in Canada's National Microbiology Lab, somehow it, that, that strain had escaped, and that's how they found it. But fortunately, if, if no one's been infected so far, then most likely it won't transmit to the public. But yeah, yeah, we'll I, just have to be, uh, you know, keep our fingers crossed now. You really have to keep the doors locked, because those, those virus particles, they're wily. <laughs> they'll, they'll run out any, you know, escape door. Yeah. So uh, that's not very good news, especially also with the impending, uh, you know, pandemic of perhaps bird flu, which is sort of festering in uh, Southeast Asia as well. Right. Well, and actually, this turns out for this particular strain, there was a uh, a substrain that mutated from it due to some sort of you know viral sex between this and a bird flu at the time. I just want to hear more about viral sex. <laughs> but anyway, go on. Such that it produced another strain that killed another million people in Asia during that time. Oh wow. Okay. Well, uh, interesting news. Hopefully, uh, they'll have it contained. I'm sure they know what they're doing, more or less, except for releasing tons of <laughs> uh, deadly virus particles. And uh, this is actually reported widely, but there's a very nice article in The New Scientist. All right, Frank, so do you uh, have any uh, problems with uh, your urine? My urine, it's clear and yellow. Okay, I think that's uh, probably good. And, you know, usually when they test it, you have to get it midstream as well. Ah. Which uh, I'm rarely able to do cleanly. And is it also true that you're not supposed to have any germs in your urine? I think so, yeah. It's supposed to be fairly uh, fairly clean, yeah. Yeah, unless you're very ill or something, huh? Right, or it picks something on the way out. I don't know. But... <laughs> Of course, things can happen. I don't know. But uh, it turns out that there's a link, actually, between kidneys, uh, genes, and heart disease. Oh, jeez. Yeah. That's, is it like some bug that links them all? or? Well, it's, it's actually a, a, a protein called renalase, which apparently increases the risk for heart disease in uh, people with uh, late-stage kid- kidney disease. Okay. Is it also related to diabetes? Actually, diabetes is uh, related to, to sort of insulin production. And, okay. Yeah. So, actually, the, the thing is this. So, it's kind of interesting. Patients with end-stage kidney disease uh, face a pretty high risk of heart disease, but scientists were wondering for quite some time what it was that Mm -hmm. uh, resulted in this increased risk for heart disease. And so they actually did a search of more than uh, 114 genes, looking at several ones that were active during uh, late-stage kidney disease, and they came across this one particular gene called renalase. Does this give hope for doctors to find new cures uh, against kidney disease or heart disease? Yeah, presumably. I mean, they, they at least have an idea for what the mechanism is, because mm-hmm. they know now that renalase appears to help uh, metabolize excess adrenaline. Oh, okay. And so, which is a hormone that helps jumpstart uh, heart rate and blood pressure. So, but this can also prompt uh, heart attacks as well. Huh. So they probably just have to develop some kind of inhibitors or uh, antagonists for it. Yeah, so interesting stuff, and uh, this was an interesting paper. It was published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. Maybe if we just drink water, we wouldn't have all this garbage coming out of our systems, huh? I, I prefer things like uh, vodka. It's usually <laughs> a little better. Oh, yeah, it also kills the germs. 
so Charles, have you encountered any alien life forms in your lifetime? Uh, besides the ones uh, at Berkeley, no. <laughs> <laughs> and would you know what they'd be trying to tell you if you if you encountered them? Uh, well, most of the times they're just trying to tell me that uh, you know that the invasion is imminent and I I will be the first one against the wall. Oh man, wow, that's pretty uh pretty close to what some scientists here are saying. Uh, they're suggesting that they'll the invasion be... is imminent. Wow. <laughs> No, they'll be sending prime numbers, but I guess that's sort of an invasion of some sort. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, prime numbers certainly invade my mind all the time. <laughs> drive me mad. Yes. Really... Well, madder, I guess. <laughs> but uh, Luke Arnold from the Observatory of Halt, Provence in France suggests that uh, what SETI is doing right now, looking for signals, is probably the wrong approach. Uh, instead, what's probably easier to do would be to, you know, put giant structures that uh, our telescopes could identify readily. For example, you know, huge squares or triangles, uh, you know, maybe on a, a scale as large as, you know, a planet or an asteroid. And one way to, that it could show up is, you know, you put like a distinct number of them in front of a star or have it have, rotate around the star and then you could pick up these objects and if they're some series of prime numbers or something special, then that could be one indication of intelligent life out there. I see. Well, you know, if I was intelligent life, I would always put prime numbers around stars, <laughs> which is the most obvious place to put them. So do you have any uh, prime numbers tattooed on your uh, body? Oh, I have all the even prime numbers tattooed on my body. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just one very large two <laughs> on my back. That's my favorite number, too, you know. Yeah, well, why not? This is something that's going to be published in, uh, I believe, next week edition of Astrophysical Journal. And um, they say it could be a great compliment to the SETI program. All right, so uh, what do you do with your dead skin cells? Well, sometimes I shower and, you know, they come off. Oh, okay. You don't collect them? No, not really. They're just kind of too powdery, you know? <laughs> oh, well, you know, sometimes it's fun just to line them up in a row and name them and do all kinds of things. But anyway. Uh, at least I don't have the obsession of scraping them off until uh, my skin's bleeding. Oh, uh, yes. Well, you know, there was actually a very uh, disturbing film once uh, produced by some lady. It was called In In My Skin, which was an obsession with her skin, and she peeled it off. Anyway, if you've seen that, and if you haven't, I don't recommend it, so... Uh, but it it turns out that uh, researchers for quite some time have been wondering uh, what is the sort of composition of the atmosphere due to uh, biological particles, for instance, skin cells or dander or uh, uh, protein fragments that just float around in the air. Oh, so all the dust particles that right. came off of our bodies. Yeah, and so these are sort of biological sources for uh, all the sort of particulate matter in the air. Well, I don't know, maybe it contributes to the smog, huh? Well, actually, I mean, that's, uh, that's quite an important issue because he's, uh, a particular person named Rupert Jackney of Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany, uh, says it's actually important to know uh, what the composition uh, due to biological particles is in order to create good climate models of the of the world. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We're actually directly influencing the climate then. Huh? Well, in fact, it turns out that we probably are, because in samples that he collected in Mainz, for instance, it turns out biological fragments accounted from as little as 5% to almost half, 50% of the... Uh, particles with radius greater than 0.2 microns. Wow. So, so we could be s causing our own respiratory problems with all these particles that we're emitting, huh? Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess we're just not moisturizing enough or something. <laughs> but it, it's fascinating. I mean, all these sorts of particles, things like fibers, dandruff, plant fragments, pollen, bacteria, all this sort of stuff, it all, it all could, uh, these sort of particles could actually attract water and trigger cloud formation and precipitation even. Wow, so do Germans use moisturizer? <laughs> I don't think they need moisturizer. They just, they will it. Oh. They will their skin to be leathery. <laughs>
But in any case, so this is very fascinating work, and it was uh, published in the recent edition of Science. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grosh you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Simon Singh joins us to talk about the Big Bang. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, continuing our celebration of physics this year is our very special guest, Simon Singh. He's a physicist, science author, and an award-winning filmmaker. Dr. Singh, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. My pleasure. So you've written a very exciting book, The Big Bang, Origin of the Universe. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and who it's written for? The idea of the book is that um, it just suddenly struck me that for thousands of years, humans have tried to work out where the universe came from. And we're part of the very first generation that actually has a serious answer to this question. It, it struck me that for thousands of years, we've wondered where the universe came from. And now for the very first time, we actually have a theory. You know, you and I are part of the very first generation of human beings to have access to a compelling, convincing theory of the universe and its origins. So the point of Big Bang is to explain to people what the Big Bang theory is, who came up with the idea, and why we believe in it. So, in fact, the idea first emerged when I was at an airport and somebody sat next to me. Just They were a bright person, they were curious, but they just didn't know what the Big Bang theory was and why we believed in it. So the point of the book is to really tell everybody what the theory is and, as I say, why we believe in it. All right. I understand this year many, many fine books on physics are coming out. And in fact, 2005 is the 100th anniversary of the seminal papers written by Einstein. Could you tell us a little bit about those and how relevant they are to today's theories of physics? Yeah, 2005 is the World Year of Physics. It's the centenary of, of Einstein's great discoveries. In 1905, he published three papers, really, I suppose, that are, are very famous. One explained through the analysis of what's called Brownian motion. He, he showed that atoms really do exist. I think physicists believe that atoms exist, but Einstein proved it once and for all. What happens is if you look at something like milk, in milk you have lumps of fat and stuff in basically a, a water solution or, or floating around in water. And the water molecules bombard these particles and cause the particles to jump around. And that's called Brownian motion. And the analysis of that motion proves that atoms and molecules really do exist. Another paper he wrote looked at what's called the photoelectric effect, the way that electrons can be emitted from a material when light is shone on it. This demonstrated that quantum physics really does seem to be an accurate description of the universe. So Einstein's writing papers about atoms, he's writing papers about quantum physics, and his third paper was about relativity. And that's really important because 
it's through relativity, not just special relativity, but what's called general relativity, that Einstein developed a, a theory of the universe, or especially the gravity that sort of binds the universe together. And you can't do modern cosmology unless you understand gravity. You can't really develop a Big Bang theory unless you involve Einstein's theory of general relativity. So, what exactly is the Big Bang, and how does Einstein's theories play into that? Well, the Big Bang says that the universe started off hot, dense, and compact about 14 billion years ago, and from that hot, dense, compact state, it expanded and exploded outwards. And those bits of debris, as they moved away from each other, those bits of debris began to coalesce, and they formed the galaxies and stars and planets that we have today. But still, the galaxies are flying apart from each other. We're still the remnants of that cosmic explosion. And Einstein, I suppose, is important because the dynamics of space, the dynamics of time, the evolution of the universe through time is dictated by the laws of general relativity, as developed by Einstein. So he's he's really fundamental to cosmology in that sense. So you're, in your first chapter, you describe the development of our understanding of the world, and you share some fascinating anecdotes from notable figures, including the Greeks, Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler. Who are some of your thinkers? I think what the, what the book's really about, to be honest, is about something called a paradigm shift. I think the word, the phrase paradigm shift, is now used quite widely, but initially it was used to describe a phenomenon in science, and that is to say that in science, often we have one view of the universe. And then somebody comes along and say, says, "Hey, I think that's wrong. I've got a better view." And the establishment rejects it, and the person comes back and say, "Look, you know, I really think my new model is better." Still, the establishment rejects it. But then the, the the new kid on the block says, "Look, I've really got some compelling evidence." And eventually, the new theory, if it has enough evidence, can throw out the old theory, and it then becomes the new paradigm. Mm-hmm. So in the early part of the book, I'm looking at the paradigm shift between the, the sun going around the Earth and then to what we now have, which is that the Earth goes around the sun. That was a paradigm shift, and the person at the heart of that paradigm shift was was really Copernicus. He developed the theory that the Earth goes around the sun, just like all the other planets. And that paradigm shift relied not just on a theory by Copernicus, but also on observation. Data developed by people obtained by people like Galileo. So, the, in the first part of the book, my heroes are the, are the people that, that looked at the paradigm shift of the Earth going around the Sun or the Sun going around the Earth. In the later part of the book, the paradigm shift I look at is: Has the universe been here forever, or was it created in a Big Bang? Um, now we come to the 20th century, and quantum mechanics and general relativity have become accepted, and in fact, have found widespread applications. Yet the problem is that they're not compatible with each other. And can you explain this a little bit? Yes, I think quantum theory is about the physics of the very, very small uh, of photons of light, of individual atoms, individual quarks. So all of this depends on quantum theory. General relativity is about gravity. It's about the physics of the very large, about the, the attraction between planets and galaxies. And the, the question is, somehow these two theories have to marry up. They have to be compatible with each other, and at the moment, they different formulations. They have different bases. Their fundamental bases is very different. So people are trying to develop a theory which perhaps explains gravity in terms of quantum physics, and that's what would lead to to what's known as a unification of quantum physics and gravity. And that's one of the great battles at the moment. People may have heard of string theory. String theory is an attempt to unify all of physics. 
it seems interesting. It seems as though it might have some uh, insight into this. But as yet, it's still on the frontiers of physics. It's still rather speculative. Yeah, what do they mean when they say they want to unify the four forces? Why is gravity such a difficult one to combine? I have no idea. I think if people knew why it was so difficult, they might be able to do it. I think it's just one by one people realize that magnetism is just a, a reflection of electric forces, and sooner or later people realize that electric forces are, are connected with the exchange of photons, and then people realize that some of the nuclear forces aren't so different from the electric forces. So you have this you know, general unification of these forces, but gravity as yet remains isolated. It can't be explained in traditional, well, I say traditional, but in, in terms of quantum physics. There are several flavors of string theory out there, and also alternative ones, including M-theory and twister theory. Do you have a favorite among these? No, I don't. I, I know very, very little about string theory. It's, it's really not what my book's about. My book is about the Big Bang theory and tries to talk about what we really do know about the Big Bang. You know, isn't it incredible how much we know about the universe? Now, what we don't know is what happened at the very, very beginning. And that's a point where string theory could offer some answers. But as yet, um, I think the theory is too young to be particularly useful to the Big Bang theory. And, and it's the Big Bang theory which I, I more au fait with. And what about the very, very end? Over the years, there has been speculation of how the universe will end, either in a whimper or a big crunch. What's the latest evidence for either one of them? I, that, that's an interesting question. When I, when I was a student about 15, uh, 20 years ago, everybody assumed that gravity would pull the universe back. The Big Bang would cause this expansion, but gravity would pull the universe back, slow down the expansion, maybe even bring the universe to a halt, maybe even cause the universe to collapse back on itself in something we call a, a big crunch. But about six or seven years ago, in fact, I think 1998, some astronomers looked at the universe, and the universe isn't slowing down. In fact, it's actually getting faster and faster. The Big Bang expansion is accelerating. Now, nobody expected this. Nobody predicted it. It was a shocking discovery, and people are still coming to terms with that. The Big Bang theory is, is, is basically true, it's, it, it's accurate, but it's not complete. And one of the areas where there's still a gap is what's driving this acceleration. People talk about what's known as dark energy, but nobody really knows what dark energy is. Nobody really knows what's responsible for this acceleration, which, as I say, until 1998 was, was just not, not expected at all. So you mentioned the cosmic microwave background. How exactly do we measure that, and what does it tell us about the universe? I think the big question is, why do we know the Big Bang happened? How do we know the Big Bang is true? Why is it convincing as a scientific model? One reason is that when you look at all the galaxies, they're all flying apart from each other. That's what you would expect if the universe started with a Big Bang. Secondly, if there was a Big Bang, you'd expect there to be a blast of radiation following the Big Bang. That's known as the cosmic microwave background radiation. And sure enough, when you look up into space, you see this blast of radiation. Wherever you look, whatever time of day, the universe is full of microwaves, which is the remnants, the afterglow of the Big Bang. So, you know, this is really compelling evidence that the Big Bang happened. There's no other way to explain these microwaves except in the context of the Big Bang. The wavelength of these microwaves is exactly what you would expect if there'd been a Big Bang. So that's why the Big Bang is more than just a theory. It's a theory, but it's got a huge amount of evidence to back it up. Reading your book, I understand it's a lot more people-centric than a lot of other uh, physics books out there, and you try to humanize the discipline and people behind it. What do you find most fascinating about these scientists and how they think? 
I mean, I think they're all different. I don't think there's anything that particularly they have in common. Uh, you know, I want to explain to people about the science, but uh, I also want to tell them about the scientists, the men and women who made these contributions. I think the only thing they maybe have in common is a curiosity about the world around them, a dedication, a devotion, an obsessive uh, desire to understand how nature works. But in other ways, they're all very different. Someone like Edwin Hubble loved the starlight. Uh, I mean, sorry, he loved the limelight. He loved being a celebrity. Someone like Henrietta Leavitt, who worked in, in Boston, was very shy, very retiring, and still very few people have heard of her. She worked out how to measure the distances to the galaxies. So they're all very, very different. But as I was saying, what they have in common is probably a curiosity and an obsession to understand the, the nature of the universe. Great. I guess we're running a little bit out of time here. Are there any last words you'd like to add about your book or yourself? You know, I love writing these books because... For me, I mean, I'm not a cosmologist. My training is in particle physics, so it's great for me to learn about cosmology. I've spent sort of about three years studying the subject now. And then it's equally fun for me to try and share that with other people by writing a book or touring the States just in January and February lecturing on cosmology. So, you know, either way, it's fun for me. It's fun for me to learn about cosmology and it's fun for me to pass it on. And so, you know, that, that's part of the joy of being a, a science journalist. Great. Dr. Singh, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. My pleasure. And we were just talking to Dr. Simon Singh. He's a science communicator and author of the recent book, The Big Bang. It's now available in bookstores in your neighborhood as well as online, so check it out. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KLX. Coming up, we'll find out what gold plating is, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, and now it's time for the Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. And Dr. Singh has kindly agreed to join us for this week's Grokotron 5000. And this week's question is Big Bang or Black Hole? And our very first subject here is George W. Bush, Big Bang or Black Hole? I think, I think it's too complex a question for Big Bang or Black Hole. <laughs> I think a nebula. A nebula. Probably the best bet. And what about your UK counterpart, Tony Blair? If we're assuming that Big Bang is positive, I'm assuming, I, I think he's a Big Bang. In fact, we've just announced a general election on May the 5th. So we'll see how many people agree in Britain that he's a Big Bang or whether they want to consider him a black hole instead. All right, and of course, a noted British physicist Stephen Hawking. Well, you know, black holes are what he's famous for, but again, if we're thinking that Big Bangs are positive, I think he's a, he's a great, brilliant physicist and, and admire his attempts to popularize science, so definitely a Big Bang. Awesome. And I guess turning to the celebrity field, U.S. pop star Michael Jackson. Uh, I think we're definitely looking at a black hole there. And finally, the world's richest man, Bill Gates. 
gosh, I, every day I go to work and I, I couldn't do my work without the stuff he creates. I, I, I have no problem with Microsoft. Uh, it's good stuff and uh, he seems to be a clever guy. So I, I'd say big bang. Okay, Dr. Singh, thanks for joining us on the Grokotron 5000 this week. My pleasure. And I'm Forrest here with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is gold plating? Well, down here in the south, everything's shiny because of southern hospitality. And what you see is all the metals look like gold. And how does it happen? Well, you have a solution of gold 2 plus. That's gold in ionic form and we add some electrons and then they stick to the surface and that's how you get gold plating. Hey yo, thanks a lot there, Forrest Gump. Hey, you come over to Brooklyn, I'll show you a good time. I'll get you lots of candy. It's going to be great. Hey, this is uh, Brooklyn Louie, and I'm going to tell you something. You know, here in Brooklyn, we like three things. We like our hot dogs. We like the Dodgers, of course, before they moved to L.A. And, of course, here, we also like the Feynman diagrams. But you know what? What the hell are they? <laughs> I don't know what they are. Well, if you do, you can email us here at groxandhotmail.com. You know, we're not going to win anything, but, hey, you just might be able to find out what those particles do. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, 